A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. For an extended episode summary, please see the weekly programming notes episodes. On to a quick bottom line up front. In this episode, I interviewed Jesse Anderson, Managing Director at consulting firm Big Data Institute, host of the Data Dream Team podcast, and author of three books, most recently of which was called Data Teams. A few key takeaways from Jesse's perspective on the choosing technology side You should make sure you have the right team in place to make good technology decisions. The team needs to be in place first rather than the technology being the draw for uh, people that want to use that technology. Before selecting any technology, it's crucial to understand what you are trying to accomplish and to understand that the technology will provide help in addressing the challenges but won't solve anything itself. It is a tool. That's the definition of a tool. Focus on, is this the right tool or solution for us now and in the future? What is the roadmap and the vibrancy of the solution? Is this a horse I want to hitch my wagon to? Technology must earn its keep, meaning you should understand the total cost of ownership and what is your expected return on those costs? What is your return on investment? Otherwise, you can decide that you want to use a technology now, but it's not really the right fit for you six months, one year, two years down the road, and removing that and replacing it has a cost. Data tooling cycles are probably going to be 10 years at the most going forward. If you look on the operational plane, it's been much more like a 30-year cycle. So prepare for 
obsolescence of your tools. So you aren't overly reliant on any one technology. And some takeaways from Jesse's point of view on decentralizing data teams. Currently, software engineers aren't ready to be data product developers. So you would need to embed uh, data engineers to handle creating and maintaining data products in data mesh. But many data engineers are not willing to be embedded into those domains. Managing the dotted line versus solid line of reporting between a functional team and the domain is very difficult. Daniel Engberg talked about this in his episode number 63. There are a number of cracks where crucial data can fall into and fail to find a good owner in a decentralized data team structure, especially around those aggregate data products. Who really is going to own those and and who is going to take responsibility for those? I think most of what Jesse said is is pretty reasonable or, or correct, but I don't see a lot of what he pushed back on for decentralized data teams as being fatal flaws in certain aspects of, of data mesh. So Jesse finished by saying all your data work should have a purpose. Every organization should ask if data mesh is truly worth it for them, both now and in the future, if the answer was no to not right now. It's okay to say not now. It's okay to say not ever. With that, let's jump into the episode. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very excited for today's episode. I've got Jesse Anderson here, who is the managing director at the Big Data Institute, and he's also the host of the Data Dream Team podcast that's put out by Soda. And then he is also an author of of a few books, including most recently Data Teams. And so I had asked Jesse to be on to talk about a couple of different um, topics. One, we, we were talking a little bit about uh, he, he'd written a post about using Apache Pulsar for data mesh, and we were talking about how should we really go about looking at tooling for data mesh, and then the conversation kind of morphed into uh, Jesse's idea around, you know, how should we have centralized or decentralized teams in something like a data mesh? And I know, um, you know, one of Jamak's points is that the centralized data team can become the bottleneck, but Jesse has some experience with seeing how uh, decentralizing without good controls around that, or even with good controls can can go not so great. So um, very excited to kind of have that conversation and and share uh, Jesse's context with all of you. So with that as kind of the backdrop to the conversation, Jesse, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the topic at hand. Sure. Thank you again for having me. I really appreciate it. So as you mentioned, Jesse Anderson, uh, my company is called Big Data Institute. We mentor companies all around the world on their big data journey. And I use the word journey because, as you know, from re- from your dealings with data mesh or even any sort of data or big data, it's not just a point A to point B. It's it's a lot of it's a circuitous route. It's difficult, 
And so we help companies along that way. Uh, he talked about the three books. I've been writing about this extensively. I've been blogging about this ex this extensively, and so I'm I'm really happy to see the the community really growing on that side. Uh, before I started my company, I was at Cloudera, so I get to reflect on those early times at Cloudera and probably extrapolate from some of the things I saw based on my experience there. Uh, before that, heads down software engineer, so I get that experience as well of hitting the keys, knowing what this takes in an enterprise. And uh, I'd also say, speaking of that, the, my experience consulting really helps me in this, in this sort of situation, seeing not just a trend at one company, but a meta trend across many different companies. And since I work all around the world, across the world. Yeah, well, and that's sort of the point of the podcast as well, or, or the community is to extract out some context and then find patterns within that, right? And, and you're, you're doing that from your angle as well. You're able to say, okay, this worked at this company and here's why it worked at this company and why it didn't at that company. And, and that um, kind of being able to uh, recognize what are the patterns and what were the kind of incidentals that were very unique to a certain place is, is really useful. So, um, so let's start on kind of the tooling side. I know uh, I, I have some listeners that are actually uh, somewhat frustrated with me because I talk so rarely about tooling <laughs> and people, um, I mean, you know this from coming from the big data world of people want to solve things a little too often with the tools when uh, the approach is probably more important than the tools you choose. But tooling obviously is important. It's it's a leverage factor. It's the, if somebody has to write all of their own tools, if you have to write everything, roll everything yourself, data mesh is a complete impossibility. So let's talk about kind of what you're seeing around that, especially the selection process. You know, you've been in many, many big data tooling selection processes, and you've seen why people kind of go down bad paths when they try and solve it only with the tool. So like, what what are your initial thoughts when, when I'm saying that, right? Of how should people approach what, you know, what tools should they use or, or, you know, is it tool first, challenge first? Like what, what, what do you recommend? So I, I, I recommend uh, starting with, well, one of the reasons why I appreciated Jamak's approach to data mesh and it co coincides with my book is I think it all starts with people. So you talk about the tooling, but I think the tooling starts with the right people. So the, at the very basic answer of your question, and this is a question I've asked many other people as well. Their answer is people too. And it's my answer is people. So you get the right people. You get the right people in the right seats. Those people will help you choose the right technologies. And that's where it starts at its, at its core. Now, uh, that doesn't answer your question because there's people thinking, I need these tools and technologies. And that's completely true. One, I think that we as technologists tend to focus on the tool because that's what we can do. We can engineer that, but that's just one part of it. So on the other side, we have our people, sort the people, get the people right, look at the technologies. Now, let's imagine that we've, we're in this selection process and that we're looking at various technologies. I've led many, many of these meetings, many of these selection processes. And it all, and, and, and at, at its core, at its base, when we talk about this, 
we talk about the use case. What are we trying to do with these technologies? Uh, in in data mesh, we may or may not know what those all of those in use cases may be. We may not know that exhaustively, but we should have a pretty good inkling of what's happening. And I think that's key. We can't just throw in the towel and say, we won't know the use cases. You generally will. You may not know all of them, but you need to know at least some of them because those those use cases are what dictate your technology choices. Uh, in, in some ways, when we look at a technology, when I look at, at a technology, we always say that technology needs to earn its keep. By that, I mean, there is an, is an inherent overhead to each technology choice you make. That technology choice has to be maintained. You may have to pay for a license. Even if it's open source, let's say, there's still an overhead to running that on even the cloud. There's an inherent overhead to people learning that. There's an inherent development overhead. So you have to take that into account. Each one of those technologies needs to earn its keep. So now we kind of come full circle back to our use case and we think about how does this technology enable our use case? That's the core question we're trying to ask in these. So if we can't answer that use case question, we can't make the right technology choices. We can make stabs in the dark. Now those stabs in the dark may be right. You may go down with some sort of industry standard technology. Let's say Apache Spark, probably going to be there, but what about technology X? What about technology Y? Those technologies may be the wild card in there where you may bark up a tree that not knowing your use cases, you may not actually need that technology. Or you may find out that subtle nuance that that technology doesn't do. And that's a difficult uh, and usually expensive, both time and money uh, thing to learn about. Yeah, and I think, so Doron Parat on her episode talked about build versus buy. And, and you were talking about you know, what's the actual er, earning your keep? What is the total cost of ownership of running this tool? And that it's not just the initial purchase price because people get a little enamored with open source, you know, both of us coming from kind of open sourcey type backgrounds. We've seen that people get a little overly enamored with open source because it's free and it's like, but it has a cost of, of running that. And I think that's why we've seen the rise of database as a service and other kind of you know, AAS type of um, tooling within the infrastructure space. And then, but then you also have to look at the integration costs um, because that can be, you know, that's where the industry standard tools can be better than these new up and coming tools because the integrations are already done in some form or fashion for you. So I think, really thinking about that total cost of ownership before um, doing that. I think you you were saying that a lot, and I think that's really important. Um, when you are going down that that road of, of evaluating, what are some of the key things that you look at? Is it that you're like, do you, do you look kind of, you know, when people start at a job, they do like a 90-day plan, 180-day plan or whatever. Do you look at it? Is this the right tool for us? today? Is it the right tool for us in six months? Do I think it's going to be the right tool for us in a year, two years? You know, do I need to plan to for obsolescence of this and that we're going to 
potentially rip it out? Like, how do you work with people to help them get comfortable with and make the right tooling decision for whatever period that they're going to use it for? This is an important question. I think it's an important question, especially for banks and financial institutions that are used to this 20-year longevity, or sometimes they've gotten even more from their mainframe. So they're used to these 30-year technology cycles. Here in data space and data world, those are much shorter, unfortunately. And so I think it's telling management up front, hopefully the technologists know this, but if they don't, you tell them that. We're not going to get 30-year life cycles out of these. You may. The, the source code won't be going away anytime soon if it's open source. It just may not be maintained. Uh, then we look at things such as Hadoop. We're, we're probably not going to get another 20-year life cycle out of, a, out of a big data technology. You're probably going to get 10 or, or less, maybe five in some cases. So this is an important part as we look at as I look at that. Then there are obsolescence that we that we worry about, where in in these cases, in the in this build versus buy, let's say we we are we're missing something or we're missing a, a technology, and we go on GitHub or we go on the Apache Foundation. One of the key things I look for is how healthy is that project? Is that project going to go away? Is that project gradually increasing in contributors, maintainers? Has this died? I've had clients where I've seen what, which way the company was going and said, hey, no, this is, this is really the wrong way you want to go. And that saved them tens of millions of dollars. And that was a bank that was going to standardize on a technology that was, what wasn't going anywhere. And it wasn't just you know an opinion thing where I was saying, in my opinion, this isn't going anywhere, you could quantifiably show, hey, this technology is dying a slow death. Uh, this is really a poor choice for you. There's other better choices. So when we go look at these technologies, even companies, you really do need to do an assessment, not just of, uh, in, in the case of that company I was just mentioning, their architect did a basically a box sort of comparison, a feature sort of comparison perhaps aided by that vendor that said, uh, vendor A has this feature, vendor B, vendor C. And what they neglected to say is, and here's the other part, here's the other part of this is, is this the right tool? Is this the right technology? Is this going to last long enough for us to have these this longevity? So the, perhaps if you're in a startup, you're thinking about a 10-year longevity is, wow, I would love for this company to, to last for 10 years at a bank, insurance company, something like that. If you're not getting 10 years out of this, you've got a negative investment. So that brings up the, the important point of, if you do have a sinking feeling about, hey, maybe this will go away, there are some ways to hedge your bets. And that's one, a thing that we go through of ways of hedging your bets on these technology choices. So do you think that that, so people want to use like the newest technologies in a lot of cases. I say, technologists want a technology. As you mentioned earlier, it's also a little bit more comfortable because technology is um, not, at, it's, it's much more tangible, right? Like people can understand what a technology is versus, you know, you talk about organizational patterns and things like that, which are crucial to data mesh, but they're not, you know, nearly as, as kind of concrete. But 
Um, do you then recommend that people, if there is like an emerging technology, but you're not sure if it's going to be the winner or if it's going to be around that long, you know, is there the cost of adding that to your platform or, you know, using that greater than the benefit that it would provide? Like, how do you think about that as well? If we think we're missing this feature that could add extra value, but the cost might not be there. Like, how, how do you have that conversation? Or as you said, how do you set yourself up so that if that feature goes away or, or becomes stagnant, it's not a huge cost on you? Yeah, the way I do is I start out with uh, talking with management or the perhaps the architect or lead of that team. And I say, how either aggressive or conservative is your company about technology adoption? And I asked that question because as much as I was talking about financial companies, there are different nuances, for example, to financial companies. I had one client who was a, a high-frequency trader. Top end uh, were pretty aggressive in their technology adoption. And what, what I told them is, hey, just know that maybe one, maybe two, maybe all of these technologies we're about to adopt you may have to go through and redo in some amount of time as it goes the way of the dodo. And you just know that going in. So you can, so there's no, if it happens, if it, if it becomes the standard, even better. That's what could happen at two. If you're early on, you could choose the right horse and you could, you could be that first one and that first company being, and go with, go with the adoption cycle which would be great. But at the same time, you could choose one of the losers and one of those losers could make it so that you, you have to re redo everything. So it's a, it's a, not just a technology choice, but it's a talking to the C level in that case at the C level, I told them this is what could happen. So you, you, you warn them up front. Now, how do you make it so that that isn't a, a, a deal breaker or just uh, leaves them leaves them stranded as it were. I think this is one of the things I like about data mesh and data mesh gives us a certain level of flexibility where I think we'll be able to wean off a technology easier. So you and I coming from the days of let's say Hadoop, when everything was just Hadoop and everything was MapReduce and there was just this file in HDFS, for example, it was really hard to wean yourself off of MapReduce that you had one one place, one thing that it was in. Whereas when we start looking at data mesh, we do have a great deal more flexibility. Where if the data has been ex the data products have been exposed correctly, we may be able to stand up a new technology much easier because that data is available and we're not having to do some backflips in order to get it to a new place to be exposed by a new technology. And that's really the key here is we mitigate our risk in, in the case of data mesh by making it easier to stand up new technologies. But at the same time, we can mitigate our risks by perhaps layers of indirection uh, using APIs. Uh, I'll give a concrete example here. Let's say you were worried about uh, Pulsar versus Kafka. And so you have Kafka being uh, being used more than Pulsar right now. 
and you say, I'm trying to decide, I don't know if Pulsar is going to win this race. Well, what you can do is you could write your code using the Kafka API and you can use a Pulsar backend. Those are some examples of mitigating your risk. Uh, th this is something that the cloud providers have followed as well. You have event hubs from Microsoft. It uses the Kafka binary protocol. You don't have to rewrite your code per se. It may not have every single feature such as transactions in it, but you have a, a pretty good way of mitigating that risk of, of not having to rewrite all your code. You may, you may not have to rewrite your code, but you'll definitely have to retest as you move on to different systems. Yeah, I think that point is, is important to what, what are we actually exposing to the users, right? That um, if we can treat the infrastructure as purely plumbing and that the interface to um, managing your pipelines and things doesn't matter very much to the actual users, they don't have to really care. And, and that's especially what you want is to make it so that the users themselves don't have to care. And, and that, that actually transitions super well into the other point that we had talked about a little bit was like, are we at a place where you think that we can be managing pipelines as code? Are we at a place where software engineers can actually be managing these pipelines? You know, we've had this conversation a bit in the community about who should be your data product producer or your data product developers, you know, and that question, it kind of hinges on can software engineers really write their pipelines right now? Or is that just adding too much more to their plate and you've got too much additional context when, you know, every software engineer app developer is now expected to be full stack and all that, that kind of thing that I'm not a huge fan of either. Um, but like, what are your thoughts on what you've seen there? That's honestly one of my worries about the way Jamak describes data meshes, that we would have front frontline software engineers doing this. And I don't have to be theoretical in this. I've seen this at many companies where their frontline software engineers created a data product. And the, the, the issues created by that is is quite a bit. It's it's actually a software engineer deals with data a different way. I, I had a conversation with Jamak yesterday. That'll be a podcast airing on on my show on the Data Dream Team podcast. But we talked. I talked about it. But I'll talk about it even even more since we have more time. But in that case, that company. Um, the software engineers don't understand schema change, for example. Schema change to most software engineers is a change of a, a, of a database table. You can change that database table around as much as you want, because as soon as you change that database table, maybe you do a column rename, it goes through and it changes that historically for you. You don't have any sort of V1, V2 of that data you just have one look at that database table and it's just completely renamed all in one fell swoop. Same thing for, let's say, uh, a change in what that number, maybe you promote from a short to a 32-bit integer, let's say. No need for, for one version and another. But in the data world, that's a whole different story. And it was really hard to get people in the software engineering side who are creating this data product to say, hey, you can't be making schema changes all the time. 
and you can't be making this sort of schema change, or you need to actually discuss the schema change because the schema change that you have, uh, it breaks everything downstream. And so the, 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 the software engineers just don't think in that. And this isn't me picking on software engineers. When, if you had rewinded in my career to 20 years ago, I frankly would probably be doing the same thing. I wouldn't have understood that. It wasn't until I started creating binary schemas and line protocols or uh, early on. And then once you get into the data space of laying down terabytes, petabytes of data and saying, oh, guess we need to make a schema change here. It's a, it's a whole different ballgame. So it's really key. So coming, kind of coming full circle on this, on this thing, I am worried that saying data software engineers in and of themselves without any sort of direction or oversight can expose these data projects correctly. And, and I think that's actually something that, at least my interpretation of what Jamak has said and what we've discussed, um, is she actually agrees with you that it's it's we're not in a place where we can turn that over to the software engineers just yet. Um, we need to build out the frameworks and the patterns and the toolings and all of that to make it where software engineers can do that. Um, I've talked about, I don't think that application developers literally to be able to do their job can have empathy for those changes because they have to make those changes. Otherwise their application becomes stagnant, right? So those changes are important to their, you know, primary job. And so we also have to elevate the, the data to being part of their primary job, you know, that it's not a secondary concern, but we also have to give them the tooling to be able to test, is this going to break all the things, right? And, and that they can understand that those schema changes, um, you know, even if it doesn't break a schema contract, it may break a data contract because it may be that the column, you know, you had just numbers in the column and you've got you know, integers in the column and you've got integers in the column. So the schema doesn't break, but they changed what it meant entirely. <laughs> and so the data contract actually does because the meaning of what they're sharing, the information, the data itself, the ones and zeros, that that part didn't break, but the information, like the metadata aspect of it did break. So yeah, I I, I actually agree with you, but I think we need to make it so that those those software engineers can actually do this. And we're not there yet. There are some tools that are coming from a pipeline perspective, but I haven't seen anything that really helps people easily to understand what are my changes going to affect downstream? And, and can I notify those people? Can I actually understand who's consuming my data and then have those conversations with them as to why? And then we can talk about can I make this schema change? This column isn't used by anybody, so it doesn't matter. But, uh, you know, these five columns that I want to change, no, I can't do that. But is there a reason you wanted to drop that column? Oh, no, I just don't use it anymore. Oh, well, it's really necessary for the data people. So let's not drop it, right? That communication can't happen right now. So software engineers literally can't care about data because they don't have the ability to know what their changes are actually going to affect. That's completely true. And and your memory of what Jamak uh, said is actually what we discussed. I won't ruin I won't ruin the podcast. If you if you want to listen to that, I'd highly suggest it. But yeah, uh, Jamak says that she's a futurist. So in her in her um, 
skills finder or something like that. I, I took it to she's a futurist. So th she thinks about things in the future. And I'm more of a strategy person where I have to I have to strategize what to do about this right now. So we we actually talk quite a bit about this and uh, it, it's a it, it's an interesting discussion. But yes, it, it also reminds me of a discussion I was having pretty recently with some software engineers about just creating a schema. And some of the recommendations or some of the changes I was talking about, of they're thinking about schema change as a point-to-point -point protocol. So we were talking about how do we get data uh, out, pu published out with a schema. But they're thinking about, I'm thinking about this being a point-to-point -point consumption where we are producing, we are consuming for this one thing, but it was more difficult to say, no, don't think, just think about that. This is going to be a data product that we'll use for other things. So let's think about what those other things will need. And that's a, that's a, I, I think that's the key difference between a software engineer and a data engineer, not just that specialization in big data, but also that ability to think about, oh, we're probably going to need XYZ for an analytic. We're going to need, uh, for example, uh, in that case, we were talking about a delta. Uh, what was the number before and what is the new number? And the reason that you, that you want what the number before was is if you're writing some kind of machine learning analytic or ma machine learning algorithm, perhaps even an analytic, you either need to know what the number was before or you have to go do a lookup or you have to have that memory. There's a lot of reasons for this. But if you have that number from before, the previous number and the new number, now you're eliminating some of that statefulness. And the for a software engineer, they're thinking, well, why don't you just store that in the database? And for me, I'm thinking, well, we have this laid down in a file. We don't want to look that previous data up. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the bitemporal nature of of analytics, right? That, you know, uh, Jamak talks about that of what what was it? When did it change? You know, all of that, like you need that that kind of concept. And, and yes, you don't want to just have to look things up because most of the time on the operational plane, it's not that you're looking up you know, 800 records or 8,000 or 8 million records, right? Um, but on the analytics side, it could be even a billion records at once. And so you want to make that efficient and you want to just make that um, something that, that doesn't require that super expensive join or anything like that. Well, so speaking of joins, we actually talked about joins quite a bit because uh, I'm, I'm still of the opinion that joins... Uh, that was a question I asked her or a, a topic for our discussion was, okay, if you do a join, a join data set, who's responsible for that? And uh, I didn't see it in the book, but she said that she did talk about aggregated uh, uh, data sets where, in my experience, we often need a data set from here and a data set from here to be joined. And who's responsible for that? Is, is it a brand new team? And in this data mesh world. And so her thought was that those would be ephemeral that are just brought together as they're needed. And in my experience, given what we have right now, so here her future state is we would have the technology to do this very fast and it would just join them quickly. But my f current state is, okay, well, if I've seen these joins and joins are by far the most expensive thing that we have in big data. If we have 
two big data, two data sets, joining them in real time, joining them in batch, what have you, that's a lot of overhead. And that's really when you start to hit problems, you hit scale problems at that point. So now if you, if you say, hey, I'm going to do this join three times or four times instead of once, that can be a whole different story. So that's, that's something we, we talked about there. Yeah, the it, it, I've talked about this in a couple of different places of is this um, re- repetition, right? So it is kind of that reuse. Is this going to be something that's going to be done multiple times? Let's look at that efficiency. And, you know, I think there, from my opinion, um, it's okay to have analytics that take a little bit of time. I know a lot of people want like, you know, millisecond response times and doing your analytics for things where it's just somebody's just trying to find answers to things. And I just find that kind of silly, but I know people want that, but it's also the compute has a lot of cost. And you also need somebody who is um, monitoring for, is there any change to this, right? You need somebody who actually is an owner if this is really, if that joining of those two sets of data is crucial, we do need to, to think about this. And this is a, a, a question that comes up a lot of the aggregated domain ownership. Yeah, so in, in that sense, I'm, I'm definitely for a team either being set up or members of both teams being set up to be responsible for that aggregated data set to make sure that it adheres to whatever they're doing. Yeah, And ideally, you can use SQL or some form of SQL to express that whether it's a Flink SQL in real time or it's a Spark SQL to do it in batch. Ideally, that's what you're doing. But as you d- mentioned, it's not just here's how we do it and here's the SQL. It's also here's the data observability. Here's, the, here's how we make sure that that is being run operationally correctly. So, uh, so I want to transition into uh, the other topic we were, were looking at, at chatting about, which was... Um, kind of, you know, centralization versus decentralizing teams and kind of what you talked about as well is what's the the current state versus the future state. And, um, you know, I think Jamak does kind of have a vision of wouldn't it be nice if we can figure out how to get here. So we kind of need to put the, um, the, the stake in the ground or the, the aim out there and we need to work towards it. We need to strive towards it because if we keep doing what we're doing, it, you know, data has been kind of getting more and more broken as <laughs> as people lose uh, less and less agility and flexibility as we continue to scale. So let's figure out how we can do that. But um, let's talk about those challenges of the now of what happens when what you've seen when when people are decentralizing their their teams on the data side, and and maybe we can talk about. Um, when that's dotted line decentralization versus solid line decentralization, right? Who are they reporting to? Are they into the domains or are they kind of still part of a central team, but they're more embedded in the domains? Like what what, what have you seen there and, and kind of what's gone wrong? Why, why, why are you trepidatious about this? I, I, I think to answer your last question first, why am I trepidatious is because I don't have to think about theoretically this might happen. I've seen this. I've seen this for years. So people have been doing decentralized teams since since I was at Cloudera. So I, I got to see what it looks like firsthand and the cleanup. And so the, 
when we look at centralized versus decentralized and dotted line versus solid line, there are, are different problems that we need to, to watch out for. We need to be careful that, a, or the, the way I term this initially is, do we have a good, solid best practice that is homogenous throughout the organization? Uh, let me put it a different way is, if you were to walk up to two people in your organization, in your data organization, and ask them, let's say a standard question, would you get two answers that are completely different? Or would you get the same answer of, you would use this, this technology, because we've already stood that up, and so on and so forth. And that is, the, that is, an, honest, that is an, an important question, because that shows that you have some level of coherence around best practices in your data organization. Because if you start out and you start out with a decentralized model, you won't have created this, this best practices being known throughout. If your best practices aren't known throughout, everybody will make their own decision. And that's kind of what Jamak is saying in Data Mesh is everybody gets to make their own decision. But the problem with everybody making their own decision is you don't get some things such as an economy of scale. Uh, economy of scale of even something as, as simple as a license. If everybody does their own license and to two different technologies that do maybe the same thing, you will pay twice. You will pay, you'll, you'll pay double. You, you may pay triple. Uh, you, you won't get an economy of scale. So even, even that filters all the way down operationally and operationally saying, okay, well, how much does this, does this cost? We won't run a single cluster. We'll run two clusters. We'll run three clusters. And there is an, a, there, there's an inherent cost to running multiple clusters like that. Uh, then we get into some of the dotted line, some of the solid line. Well, who, how, if you start doing dotted line uh, sort of reporting, that becomes somewhat more difficult. This, who's your boss? Who, who helps you? Who, who makes sure that you're doing those best practices once again? So that dotted line, if, if your boss tells you to do something, do you listen to them or do you listen to your dotted line uh, manager? Uh, let's say it's a, a they're asking you to do something that is against the best practice. Or uh, this usually happens in more politicized organizations of, uh, I want you to do it and I want you to do it fast. And those those people in the main core data engineering team, they're just, they do everything so slowly. What sort of corners can be cut? So that's, a, that's an important question. When we have solid line, that's, Maybe that's a, a better way. They're embedded. I talk about this decentralized versus centralized in my book, Data Teams. Now, the issue with, uh, with solid line is, do you have people who actually want to be in that business unit? Let's say they're in the core data team doing stuff that they just love and they're challenged every day and then you put them in marketing. And they say, I hate marketing. Why did you put me in marketing? I'm going to quit. And I've seen that too. So it's it's uh, it's a bit about making sure people has have expectations up front. Uh, it's also about, I think, doing tours of duty. Maybe you say you're not going to be assigned to marketing forever. You're going to do a one month tour of duty. You're going to do some amount, and you'll come back and have been cross trained and have a, a brand new understanding of the marketing data, and you'll be able to do even more. Something like that.
Yeah, one, one is Rosier's did a uh, uh, meetup last year, and um, I want to say May or June of last year, and he talked a lot about this aspect, and, and he and I have talked privately about like how does this matrix of, of reporting work, and that you do have, he talked about it as an 80-20, and that you have uh, tours of duty. So you have people that are either 80% focused on building out the, the platform side and 20% of their work is kind of assisting teams that have data engineering work, you know, whether that's helping them to augment or improve their data products or, you know, things like that. And so it's 80% on the platform side, 20% in the domains. And then you have other people that are 80% of their work is in the domains and 20% is on the platform. And that you kind of have, you give people the option of, do you want to stay embedded in this domain? You know, if somebody is in a domain, do you want to get embedded? Do you want to stay with this domain and stay with 80-20 domain? Um, or do you want to come back to the data platform or do you want to go to a new domain? And so that you, you know, it means that there are are people that are, that really, really get that domain knowledge because, you know, a single month, you might not get it, but that there is that deep knowledge integration. And there's that, that deep trust as well that, and that, you know, some other people have talked about when they're embedding their data engineers, their data engineers, which, you know, I think this could be something that a lot of data engineers really don't want to do, but, and, and I've talked about that a little bit, but that a lot of their role is training the software engineers to do the kind of, you know, first, second, third tier of um, data engineering. And then, you know, the four through 10 are still going to be more of a core team that is called in when there's a real need, but that, you know, you can get to a place where you're sharing data effectively as an actual product, you know, that, that you're really thinking of it that way in most cases, in most domains, without a whole heck of a lot of, of cross-skilling and reskilling of your software engineers, because the domain's data models are not that complex. So like, is it just, are you thinking about when you're seeing this, is it that it's those complex challenges or is it even in those ones where it's simple? I haven't seen too many simple ones. <laughs> I think they're, uh, uh, so when Jamak and I were talking yesterday, she said, well, it's for complex organizations. So there you have it. <laughs> You're probably not going to be dealing with a simple one with data mesh. Uh, but there is a third uh, scenario that I was going to talk about uh, for how you could set up your team. And that's a consultative one. It I don't think it goes with the kind of core ethos of data mesh, but you would have a team that's more there in a consultative way. So the the software engineers would consult with them and they would help them. It would be like an internal consulting arm of your organization to help the software engineers or perhaps even the business build things out. Yeah, Scott Hawkins from ITV talked about that they were doing that and that they were kind of going even further than Jamak has talked about on team topologies, right? Of that they do have a consulting team in a box that they drop in for domains and they assess what, what does this domain need? And then they'll build out that consultancy for that domain for that time frame. Now, are you um, building, uh, you know, a car for, you know, 
cave people, right? <laughs> are you are you building out this complex thing and you're like, all right, now you maintain it. And they're like, we don't have the tools or the knowledge or the anything. Um, you know, uh, you know, maybe maybe talk about like the Bronze Age might be a better analogy there where they can understand like the wheel and things like that. But um, that what, you know, there are puts and takes to all of these things and, and that um, you kind of have to understand. One thing that you talked about earlier was best practices. And this is something that actually is coming up in a lot of conversations with the people that I am talking to that are, are having success is that they are looking for reuse and not just data reuse, that they are looking for these frameworks and that you have standards, not standardization. Um, Jess, uh, Jessica Kerr or Jessatron, when she was on, she talked about giving not autonomy, but agency. So if you don't if you if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, don't. We're going to give you the ability to not reinvent the wheel so that you can just share your data and that this doesn't become a big overhead. Again, if you don't have a specific domain that's complex. Yes, the organization is going to be very complex, but you might have domains where it's really not all that complex about the data that they're going to share. So, you know, I I'm I'm seeing a lot of what you're saying, but I'm I'm finding people that are finding ways to combat those challenges. But I don't think we have enough information to say that if you do these five things right of the the challenges that you've seen historically and that other people are seeing, does that mean it's going to work right, (laughs) right? We're still quite early with data mesh. You know, I'd say it's bleeding edge because you're going to get cut, right? It's not even leading edge yet. It's bleeding edge, right? So you have to be able to, to, to cut it. What, what, if you were to talk to clients about using data mesh, I mean, are you, if clients come to you and and talk about data mesh, are you telling them, wait, are you telling them you don't think it's ever going to be right for them? You know, I I think that's a fine answer. If you do, it's your own opinion, it's your own context, but. Oh, no, when, when clients come to me, we do talk about it. In fact, that's one of the things I'll be spending next week talking about is a company wants to know about doing data mesh. So uh, this is actually an exercise I've been going through this week of what do you tell them? And I think it's a, some of the questions that I keep on referring to the podcast, but I do have a recency bias there of, okay, well, who is data mesh for? And I I think that uh, that's the question at its core is, (laughs) Google thought I was talking to it. So at its core, it's about it's about who is data mesh for, and we need to. I, I think we need to give people a better understanding of who data mesh is for, because we frankly have to combat some of the vendor message about that or marketing message that says this is what data mesh is. Data mesh is our product. Just plop our technology in there. Boom, data mesh. And so this is a, you. You probably you definitely saw this in your time in in big data. I saw this all the time at Cloudera. It was, hey, uh, big data is just plopping Hadoop in, and and that's it. So it's it's giving executives, giving people some better understanding of this is when you should bark up the data mesh tree. This is when you should actually be thinking about this. So an answer, direct answer to your question, yes. 
if we go through and we say, hey, this is something, a problem that they have, they have the level of complexity, they would benefit from this overall, and they're fine with putting the effort into it. And I think that's a key part. Hey, you need to know up front, you're going to be putting a decent amount of effort before you get a a huge ROI. You're going to be putting in three months, six months of effort before you get this massive ROI difference. This isn't a one week rollout. Yeah. So a lot of ifs. And if we get to that point and they say, oh, yes, we're okay with that. Yes, we will. We will start rolling out data mesh. We will go through that. We will work with them. But I, I really try to, or let me let me rewind a bit. When I started my company, I started my company around the ethos that it was going to be vendor neutral and vendor agnostic. So I find that clients like that because I'm not pushing them to say, we need to put technology X in place. We need to put Hadoop in place because my my uh, <laughs> my paycheck depends on it or my my stock price depends on it. So I find that clients like that. And by doing that, I'm able to give them, in this case, data mesh. I, I'm not supported by data mesh. I'm not supported by, I don't need to, to try to get my stock to go up. I can give the most honest answer possible. Yeah, I'm in a very weird position in that I'm able to do the same. But like what you're talking about, I get accused of gatekeeping a lot because I tell people data mesh isn't for you very, very often. I'm actually not selling. I'm advocating for people that are having data challenges. But what people see is the vision with data mesh of, you know, clean, understandable, shared data. But centralization isn't your bottleneck for most for most companies. It's not the enemy. It's it's you and I both worked in distributed systems, right? Talk to any any distributed systems engineer that is worth a damn, and they will tell you, do not decentralize if you don't need to, right? It has a massive cost. So don't do it if you don't need to. So um, yeah, I, I think I tell, well, and the other thing that, you know, we can talk about it offline or anything, but I, I use the unicorn farts principle, which is my own thing, but literally every piece of documentation, you should control, find, replace data mesh with unicorn farts because it shouldn't be seen outside of the data team, right? Data mesh is not at all about being outside the data team. You know, I I did a a podcast episode um, that came out of what is data mesh trying to achieve? Like, what, what is the point of this? It's not a technology. It's not to you know, solve a couple of small challenges. It's to make yourself that flexible and agile with, with, uh, you know, lowercase a agile, but to be able to react to the changing world with your data. And we're too stuck in a world where everything is, is very, very rigid and not flexible, but there's a massive cost to going down that route. So you've got to have a massive return that you're expecting. Otherwise it's not worth it. And pe- people keep pushing back on me and being like, no, but I want to do it. It's like, oh, if you want to go down this route, fine. But it's it, you're you're very likely to be somebody that's that's one of the not good implementation stories instead of the, the hero implementation stories. If you take on this big cost of actually going down this route or you go you half asset and you're not going to get benefits and you're just going to create chaos. 
So I, I get I get pushed back on that a lot, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's something. But um, so would love if if you want to give um any reaction to that, would love to hear that. But I also want to be very cognizant of time. I know you got to catch a flight. So um, is there anything? Uh, on that topic or in general that you think that we didn't talk about that, that you'd like to kind of wrap up the episode about or, or things like that. Um, and then we can talk about where people can find you and, and get your books and all that fun stuff as well. Yeah. I would say ditto to a lot of what you said. It's, it's not for everybody. Please be careful. Similar to Hadoop. Hadoop wasn't for everybody. All the microservices weren't for everybody. But everybody hauled off and thought that that was the next big thing. Uh, ways to find me, ways to talk to me. Um, there's, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, and you can contact me via email on my on my personal site. That's at jesse-anderson.com, or the company site is bigdatainstitute.io. Both those have contact pages. And if if people are interested as well in, uh, you know potentially hiring you as a consultant, what's kind of your general focus that, that you kind of work with people on? So general focus is both technology and organization. And that comes from my time once again at Cloudera of seeing that Cloudera really focused on the technology, but there wasn't anybody saying, but you need to change the org part. So that <laughs> is the, the key part of we handle both at the same time. You'd, let's say you're missing a data engineering team. We will help you form that data engineering team, help you, uh, your ex executives understand what that is, why that should be, what they do, help you fill that out, as well as help you choose the technologies. And that's really what I wanted the company to, to help you people do is handle both sides to be as successful as possible. Conway's law is a thing, right? Like it, it, the technology doesn't solve the the problem. You use the technology to help you address that challenge. And and if you if you don't go down that route, you're looking to just create more chaos. Um, it's it's funny how many times I talk to people that are somewhat skeptical of data mesh, and yet the people that are bought in and the people that are skeptical are kind of saying the same things, but the people that are more skeptical are saying, we haven't figured it out yet. And the people that are more bullish on it are saying, but we can figure it out. And, and so it's just this big, uh, I think that's, that's something that's, um, we, we haven't figured it out yet, folks. Like we need to really do that. And if we can't, then data mesh might not be, super successful in the long run, but we have, I think it's worth testing it out. So um, if, if I want to give you the last word, but uh, you know, thank you so much for, for being on and sharing your context. Is there anything that you'd like to kind of tell people outside of give you a holler? Uh, yeah. If you, if what I said was interesting to you and that's a problem you're facing, you know, please do reach out. I'd love to work with you. I like to work with companies who share the same core values as, as we have of, uh, we're looking for relationships that are long term, where we're not just in there to come in and out and and really blow your company up. We're there to work with you long term, and that's that's really what people find uh, good about working with us. So I, I really do appreciate uh, uh, you having me on, and I, I wish the listeners the best of luck on on their data mesh. 
I'd like to thank my guest today, Jesse Anderson, who's the Managing Director at the Big Data Institute, the host of the Data Dream Team podcast, as well as the author of three books, including his most recent, Data Teams. As always, you can find his contact information and links to those uh, books and the podcast in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.